This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast, and I'm very excited to welcome and introduce our guest today, James Rom. Rom is an author, a reviewer, and the James H. Ottaway Jr. Professor of Classics at Bard College. He specializes in ancient Greek and Roman culture and civilization, making him an extremely fitting choice for the series editor of the Ancient Lives series here at Yale University Press. In addition to editing Ancient Lives, which unfolds the stories of historical figures from all parts of the ancient world, he has contributed to the original triad of the series with his own title, Demetrius, Sacker of Cities. I'm so excited to talk further about your work on Demetrius and the series as a whole. Welcome, James, to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. First, uh, let's dive into the life of Demetrius, and then maybe we can zoom out to the larger series. I'm wondering if you could give our listeners a picture of Demetrius, who, as you have noted in the um, the the summary of the book, um, lived during a time of instability after the death of Alexander the Great um, and was a really exciting figure in the ancient world. So I'm wondering if you could give our readers a picture of Demetrius from maybe his life to his death. Sure. Well, that's that's a pretty big task because mm-hmm. his life was so eventful and took so many strange twists and turns. But um, to be very brief, um, Demetrius was part of the post-Alexander generation. That is, he came of age, became an adult at around the time that Alexander the Great died without an heir and without any plan for the future of his vast empire. The empire quickly began to fragment and Demetrius and his father, who was an older of the older generation, uh, tried to put it back together by conquering various rivals, reattaching territories that had become separated, and reuniting basically the ancient world, because Alexander's empire comprised virtually the whole ancient world. He had various successes, but also terrible setbacks. And after 40 years of this effort, he finally came a cropper and uh, 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 died a rather ignominious death in captivity. So it's a story, his story is the story of the period after Alexander's death, of what's called the wars of the successors, those men who tried to replace Alexander or carve off chunks of his empire. Thank you. Uh, in addition uh, to the title of Demetrius the Besieger, <laughs> uh, you've dubbed Demetrius one of the world's first celebrity politicians. Uh, can you expand upon how celebrity was perceived in the ancient world and if the highly sexual persona of Demetrius was replicated or rejected by future aspiring leaders? So Alexander had set the template that all future leaders tried to follow, that of a vigorous, youthful, beardless man with uh, sexual prowess, with strength, with all the attributes of youth. Formerly, uh, leadership in the ancient world was an older man's game, and leaders always appeared with beards and were 
considered, you know, mature men. Uh, so Alexander had initiated a cult of youth and Demetrius followed in his footsteps, capitalizing on his youth and beauty. He was apparently one of the handsomest men that anyone had ever seen uh, and emphasizing those virtues by uh, scandalous sexual activity, uh, highly publicized uh, in his day, so as to build up this myth of the, the young, powerful man. Um, and you know, you've written about other classical figures, um, such as you know Seneca the Younger, the great Stoic philosopher, Alexander the Great himself, and Herodotus, to name a few. I'm wondering. Uh, Thinking back to the original construction of, of the book, why did you choose to write about Demetrius for this series, and does this book serve as a follow-up to any of your other work? It does serve as a follow-up. My uh, first uh, book of popular history was called Ghost on the Throne, The Death of Alexander the Great and the War for Crown and Empire. It followed the story of the the wars of the successors for only the first seven years after Alexander's death, a time when Demetrius was only a very minor figure off on the sidelines of much bigger struggles. Uh, so in a sense, this picks up the thread of that earlier book and carries it forward by another few decades, um, a period when the ancient world was still up for grabs for whoever could dominate uh, the entire empire stretching from Albania in the east, in the west to Pakistan in the east and including Egypt and parts of North Africa, two million square miles, all of it more or less winner take all territory. And uh, Demetrius tried to be that winner who took all. Um, and you also, you note um, in the epilogue, you write, <laughs> which maybe is a little uh, bit of um, uh, a spoiler for our, for our readers, but also an exciting spoiler to, con to continue reading your book. And you write about Demetrius, uh, though he failed in his efforts as king and army commander, failed even in his eponymous role of besieger, Demetrius did not fail in the ultimate goal of a dynast to have his children inherit kingdoms. And I'm wondering if you could talk further about how his descendants realized the broader goals of unification during the period after Alexander the Great's death. So the, the, the wars of the successors, I described them at one point as a family feud on a global scale. In spite of being military adversaries, these men were all intermarried with one another's families. They had given their daughters to their rivals or even married their daughters' rivals. So Demetrius was son-in-law to, uh, uh, to Ptolemy, who was his greatest adversary, and also father-in-law to Seleucus, who was another rival. Uh, this was... Um, like the royal families of uh, 18th and uh, 17th and 18th century Europe, with lots of dynastic politics playing out in the field of marriage and, and childbearing. 
So um, Demetrius managed through advantageous marital alliances to um, place his children and eventually grandchildren in uh, on the thrones of several of the other kingdoms besides his own. So in effect, his family became the ruling family of the ancient world for a brief time. Eventually, they were replaced by others. Can you talk a little bit about how you untangled the the different uh, figures and histories surrounding Demetrius in in your writing of this popular history? Well, I liken the um, the wars of the successors to a board game, mm. like the game of, <laughs> of risk, <laughs> like the game of risk, uh, you know, played by five players all trying for world domination. And so you simply have to keep track of the of the players and where each one is at, what advantage each one holds, and uh, where their boundaries lie uh, between territories. It's um, it's not an easy task, but it's also not that hard. I I try to just keep the readers clued in at all times to who is where and who the major figures are and who's ahead. Hmm. And usually it was Demetrius who was ahead, Demetrius and his father. And uh, that was very much to their disadvantage because whoever was in the lead role uh, had uh, everyone else line up against them. It was usually three or four against one, the one being the top dog. And that was usually Demetrius. So he actually fought three separate times against a coalition of all four of his rivals. Oh, wow. That's that's really interesting. I, I think it, um, in in kind of trying to to parse out the the different relations between figures in the ancient world, especially during a time um, of intermarriage and polyandry, that perhaps the evolution of our digital technologies might help with with balancing out, you know, the family trees. Um, and I mean, I'm I'm really fascinated by um, the sources that you've used to tell and to um, kind of dive into the life of Demetrius. And you uh, have noted that much of your knowledge of Demetrius comes from Plutarch's parallel lives. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how you approached classical sources as a classical scholar yourself. Um, in addition to other visual resources like coins or stone inscriptions and, and how that all of those sources might have helped you in the writing of this text. Yes, coins are a huge asset where Demetrius is concerned because, of course, coins were the best means of propaganda for an ancient ruler. He could circulate his own image starting in the generation after Alexander. All the successors were circulating either Alexander's image or their own on their coins. And the coins of Demetrius capitalized on his famous good looks. So we have some beautiful and and very well engraved coins from his era uh, showing him in the various guises that he wanted to present himself when he was the ruler of a naval empire he portrayed himself as poseidon and mm -hmm. in other images he portrayed himself as dionysus because of course that was the god of of youthful debauchery 
which is how he wanted to be seen. Um, but in terms of literary sources, Plutarch is, of course, the main source. He's got a fabulous biography of Demetrius, one of his best lives. He clearly was fascinated by Demetrius's character and records all kinds of wonderful stories, anecdotes, jokes, puns, uh, salacious sexual innuendos, uh, things that are just delightful for the classicist. And now I've tried to translate them for a general reader. Mm -hmm. um, and beyond that, there's other collections of anecdotes um Athenaeus's work called the Deipnos of Istai, the wise men at dinner has a lot of stories because it has a whole book about courtesans the um uh how would you call them girlfriends for hire of ancient Greece and uh Demetrius had several famous ones the sexiest most desired women of their time and uh Athenaeus tells lots of great tales about them and his relations with them. That's so interesting. I I had um, watched your discussion with Oblong Books with the other authors of this series and kind of thinking about the different ways in which um, sex and power and status played out throughout the different books in the series. And I, and I do want to come back to that. But um, I do – I wanted to ask you – as you're writing classics for uh, the general reader, how do you um, work on translating the magic of reading into the ancient world in our modern world, which in a lot of ways, many of the themes from the ancient world, um, larger themes, as you talked about, celebrity, um, you know, power, um, politics, all of those seem to be able to bleed into our modern world, but in a lot of different ways, the how we might interpret these stories for our modern world is limited in, based off of our distinct times. And I'm wondering how you how you translate the magic and, and your, your passion about the classical world into for modern day readers. Well, I, I wish I could say that I, I'm translating it, but in fact, I, I really feel that I'm just... Um, harvesting the riches of these ancient narratives i mean to me they just jump off the page they're they're so real and the characters are so vivid that uh i feel like all i'm doing is just recording them um mm. maybe helping the reader along with some of the more difficult um you know political procedures or military procedures or strategies that are not we're not accustomed to those things but um in terms of character which is really the heart of a biography uh to me they're just irresistible <laughs> so <laughs> all i have to do is sort of channel uh what's already there and uh get it onto the page yeah that's a great answer thank you um, I'm wondering if you we can maybe turn to the Bader Ancient Lives series now, and if you could tell us about some of the other titles in the series and perhaps their similarities or differences to your text and thinking about your role um, as a series editor. Yes. So the 
first three volumes that have appeared last month are my own uh, Peter Stoddard's Crassus, the first tycoon, and uh, Francine Prose's study of Cleopatra, her life and legend. Uh, Cleopatra, of course, an interesting correlate to Demetrius because she's also a figure who used sexuality to increase her power and has gone down in history as a, you know, a famously beautiful, desirable ruler. Um, Francine's book is is different in that it deals more with the post-Cleopatra myth and the ways in which history has distorted her image to suit various purposes, various agendas. Um, but all three uh, characters are, are very compelling figures. And that's really what the series is all about. It's finding the most compelling and relatable and accessible figures from the ancient world, people who, uh, for whom the reader can get an interior view. That's not true of a lot of the most famous figures. It's it's true of people like Demetrius, who the reader may not have heard of before, but the ability to access an interior life is what is central to the series. Yeah, I, I think that ties into, you know, my next question, and and perhaps you can expand on on how uh, this series is unique, you know, in your view compared to other existing series on the lives of ancient figures. So the standard ancient biography series, to the extent that there even are ones, other ones, uh, would go immediately for Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, and perhaps Pericles of Athens. That is, figures whose accomplishments were huge and history changing. But those aren't always the most interesting figures. Mm. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I personally find Alexander a bit dull. Why? Because he always wins. There's nothing that interesting about someone who always wins. Um, of course, his story is incredible. But as a character, as an individual, uh, number one, he's very inaccessible because superhuman. And two, the sources are in uh, uh, are at odds with each other over key points of his nature. And that makes it very hard for the biographer to, to figure him out. So we didn't go for those figures, the ones whose actions are larger than life, but whose characters may not be that easy to access. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you. I think our listeners and our readers will really enjoy that aspect of, of this series. And, and I'm wondering what um, other figures you're excited to explore in this series, um, perhaps, you know, figures that um, a, a little more light on their name would be good for our uh, modern condition and also um, for our understanding of, of stories and the life that they bring to our lives. So one of the um, goals of the series 
is to foreground women and members of other nations besides Greece and Rome to a degree that it is not has not been done before. So, uh, for example, we have an Egyptian ruler coming in the spring, uh, Ramses II. That's going to be a, a very interesting study by famous e Egyptologist Toby Wilkinson. Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, Agrippina the Elder, a Roman woman who was at the center of imperial politics for um, at the time of uh, Tiberius, the successor to Augustus, and uh, by Emma Southen, a wonderfully uh, colorful and exciting young writer from uh, England. And uh, uh, Virgil, whose uh, biographer is Sarah Rudin, the translator of the Aeneid, whose work is is sensational. So we've we've lined up unusual figures, figures not in the mainstream of Greco-Roman history, but either other cultures or other genders. Uh, that is the other gender, I guess, in the case of uh, Agrippina and uh, and other women who are forthcoming. I am wondering what what do you think um, classicists might, you know, hardcore classicists, not the general reader, might be able to glean from this series if they decide to pick it up? Well, again, these are figures that the even a classicist might not concentrate on, might not have much insight into if the study, if that person's study has been more, you know, mainstream central figures. Uh, you know, Pericles has been biographied multiple times, and there's lots of information about him in the ancient sources. So uh, I think most classicists would feel like, or most Hellenists anyway, would feel like they know who Pericles is. Um, the um, the other figures from his time, we have a biography forthcoming of Phocion, who's a successor to Pericles, one of the leaders of Athens in the fourth century BC, who um, has an amazing life story, lived to the age of 84, and was still in power in his 80s, and uh, uh, was reelected to the position of general about, I think, 40 times over the course of his life. So um, the, you know, a, a great story of survival, despite all odds, um, and uh, an extremely interesting personality. So I think, um, again, looking outside the spotlight, looking to the figures in the secondary roles uh, will interest many of my colleagues. Thanks so much for for sharing um, a little bit about Demetrius and also the the exciting uh, um, aspects of this series for both uh, classicists and the general reader. Um, is there anything else that you'd like our readers to know about the series as a whole or your specific rendering of Demetrius? Well, uh, I guess I just stress that uh, the um, uh, the writing that we look for is um, 
designed to quicken the pulse. It's not mm -hmm. uh, it's not your standard academic prose or or mm -hmm. even uh, historical prose. It's um, pacey, I think, is the word that was used of Crassus by the British reviewers uh, who have been wild about the book, by the way. Uh, the book has gotten acclaim from, I think, five major newspapers in, in England, and I'm sure we'll do so here when when those reviews start coming out. So um, we want uh, page turners. We want authors to keep the reader's uh, pulse, uh, you know, uh, at a, a slightly quicker pace than the usual historical narrative. Mm -hmm. Thank you, and I'm and I'm sure that the exciting lives of these ancient figures makes it easy to do so. I hope so. Yeah. Um, so you know, thank you so much for taking uh, the time out of your day to talk with me about the series. And as we have mentioned, the first three titles in the Ancient Lives series, which focus on Demetrius, Crassus, and Cleopatra, are now available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit us online at YaleBooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.